Okay, well, um, a very good evening to you all. Uh, if you're from the LSE, it's good to see you. If you're from outside the LSE, it's also very good to see you. My name's Tony Travers from the uh, Government Department here at the LSE. This is a Government Department event uh, to uh, celebrate, to coincide with the launch of uh, Charles Moore's book, Margaret Thatcher Herself Alone. There is a Twitter handle here, hashtag LSE Thatcher. And before I invite Charles Moore to speak about his book, I just want to say a few words about the book and then a few words uh, about the author before I hand over to him. What we'll then do is there'll be about 40 minutes hearing about the book, which covers the latter period of Mrs. Thatcher, Baroness Thatcher's life, uh, both in Parliament then after Parliament to her death. So it covers that period. It's the third uh, volume in this uh, biography of Margaret Thatcher. And um, all I want to say is we all know about Mrs. Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher, Baroness Thatcher, uh, a remarkable figure, uh, polarizing, but nevertheless recognized by people on all sides of politics as one of the totemic figures of post-war British politics. And somebody who, even today, whose views are sought on issues of moment by those seeking to promote an issue. I don't mention any issue in particular, but it is remarkable how somebody uh, can still be sought after their death to have a view on a subject in order that people can promote it. As I say, an unusual thing, I suspect. Now, I don't want to spoil any, any element of what you're about to uh, enjoy from Charles Moore, but I just, uh, when I was preparing for this evening, I just found the following section of the book towards the end, uh, which I thought was an extraordinary encapsulation of a person who is complicated. We are all complicated people. Uh, Baroness Thatcher was also complicated. So just let me read this paragraph out. Mrs. Thatcher's behaviour, for good or ill, cannot be understood primarily through her stated opinions, strong though her convictions were. They must be seen in the light of her character. Its contradictions were striking. She was high-minded and highly educated, yet she had a common touch. She was fierce but kind, rude and courteous, calculating yet principled, matter-of-fact yet romantic, frank yet secretive, astute yet innocent, rational yet capricious, puritanical yet flirtatious. She had an icy stare and a warm heart. Charles Moore wrote that. Uh, just let me say a little bit more about the author. Uh, Charles Moore is a journalist, former editor of The Spectator, The Sunday Telegraph, and The Daily Telegraph. As a political columnist in the 1980s, he covered several years of Mrs. Thatcher's first and second governments. He's known globally for his authorised biography in three volumes of Margaret Thatcher. The first prize-winning volume was published in 2013 after Margaret Thatcher's death, the second in 2016, and today Charles will be speaking about the third volume published this year. Published, I might add, to remarkable agreement in the uh, reviews of it, uh, which I think place it um, on a spectrum somewhere between a sort of epic and marvellous. I mean, just all sort of very, very well reviewed. And I think it's fair to say that Mrs. Thatcher's dominance of 
her government in every domestic field and her commanding presence both at home and abroad for many years makes her, along with Winston Churchill and Clement Attlee, one of the totemic figures of post-1945 British politics, argue over a longer, arguably over a longer period as well. So, as I say, uh, I'll, that's enough. Margaret Thatcher herself alone, and here to speak about it, the author Charles Moore. Thank you very much, Tony. Um, as I was saying to Tony in the, in the green room, it's a particular pleasure to be here because this was actually the very first uh, speech I gave about this book uh, when Volume 1 came out um, in 2008. So I had no idea at all. If you can imagine writing a book for many, many years and not being allowed to talk about it to anybody and then talking suddenly to the public. I had literally no idea how these things go, what you're supposed to say, how people react. And in particular, I didn't know about the business about signing the copies which people kindly buy and how all that works. And I've now become a great expert on things like flapping, so-called, when they put the flap, so that it, it, the flap uh, goes into the um, title page and it about halves the amount of time to, that you need to open the book uh, and sign it so you can sell um, more. And, um, uh, and um, Mrs. Thatcher, I may say, when she did her own memoirs, she, got, she hit the rate of a thousand signatures uh, an hour, which is, um, as it, like everything she did, it was sort of ultra conscientious and super fast. Um, I, I will, of course, it's much too great a subject to try to uh, cover all aspects of uh, Mrs. Thatcher, even within the period covered um, by this third volume. But I will do various things. I think I will explain a little bit about the background to the whole book. Um, I'll say a little bit because it's so topical about Mrs. Thatcher's attitude to Europe, and then I'll tell you two or three things which I think will surprise you about her, and certainly surprise me, and then I will throw it open to you. Um, the book, it, the reason it's so long is the nature of well, to some extent, it's the nature of her, but it's also because um, she did so much uh, and was in office for so long. Uh, but it's also um, uh, because of the circumstances in which the book arose. When you are a prime minister and you leave, you're entitled to take lots of papers with you. And there's always a slight argument about what, which are your personal papers and which aren't. Winston Churchill famously pinched absolutely massive amounts so that he could use them for his memoirs and create a great deal of money out of them. Um, uh, and he was very interested in, in his papers. Um, and he, he, he said, uh, history, will, history will be kind to me. And I know that because I shall write it. Um, uh, where Mrs. Thatcher had a completely different sort of mind and um, was not, though she did write her memoirs, she was not f fundamentally interested in self-examination and she wasn't a natural writer, though she had very great gift for oral expression. But she, the same thing as with Churchill, she left office, she um, uh, uh, took a vast amount of paper which she's entitled to do, she wasn't personally very interested in it, she had to decide what to do with it, uh, to, to place it in, she was offered several million dollars by an American university for it, but thought it should stay in Britain and didn't accept any money for it. And you may remember that she was a graduate of Oxford, and Oxford had refused her an honorary degree uh, in the most extraordinary circumstances, really, when you think about it. They, they, they educate the first woman prime minister, and then they don't give her an honorary degree. Quite remarkable. So she gave her papers to Cambridge um, in an in a, um, uh, act of understandable revenge, and um, they are deposited at Churchill College, Cambridge. And when she uh, did this, 
she needed to decide, well, she was advised that she should think about this problem. Here they are, they're, they're in the archive, but most of them are not yet released to the public. This is way back, she did, this was all happening in about 1997. Um, they're not yet released to the public because they're covered by the 30, what was then the 30-year rule about records. So uh, people said to her, friends said to her, somebody's going to write your uh, biography. Why don't you pick someone who can get to work um, uh, on all this now, who, with whom you have a reasonable relationship and you can cooperate and this person can get on with it? And she very kindly, for reasons I've never really known actually, uh, picked me. Um, and so this was in 1997. And what she said was, you can see all my papers, and I'll ask the Cabinet Secretary if you can see all the government papers, which are also governed by the same rule, and you can interview me and my family, and I will ask all my colleagues, who, who, uh, um, and particularly former civil servants, and, because they're always told they mustn't speak. So she, she particularly asked that they should be allowed to speak, and the Cabinet Secretary sh said that they should. So almost all of them agreed to that. And basically she sort of turned the key in the lock for me, and her condition was that um, she would not be allowed to read the book and it should not appear in her lifetime. Uh, and the reason for that, apart from pos possibly not wanting to read it anyway, was that um, she uh, was worried that people wouldn't, um, uh, they would think that she tried to control the author. Uh, and of course that is a very reasonable thing to think. If, if, and some authorised biographies fall down on that very much, that they're essentially written by the subject rather than the author, which makes them very unvaluable as history. Um, it also helped when I was interviewing people, because a lot of people, in fact, I would go so far as to say everyone, was um, very frightened of Mrs. Thatcher in a way, and so <laughs> they, they, um, they didn't like the idea that she would read what they said about her, so they were greatly relieved to know that she couldn't read it. I found that helpful uh, in explaining to people. But it was very good of her, very sensible to do this, and it showed an interesting quality in her, which is though she had great egotism, like all great leaders, she didn't have vanity about herself. So she wasn't, she didn't want to sort of say, oh, didn't I look good, good at that moment when I said this? Wasn't I? This is a very male thing, by the way, I think, particularly with politicians. They love telling stories about how they did a colleague down or how they were so clever and funny and brilliant and subtle and um, so on. And she never went in for that. So she didn't want to examine her own behavior and she didn't want to um, be the author which sort of told it all um, beautifully and to her advantage. However, I'm sure she would not, have, would not she didn't have a historical mind. Um, she tended to look forward and so I imagine that if I had let her read the book, she would not have enjoyed it. She would have, the, the whole idea of the evidence piling up, some of which is of course critical and she hated being examined, she hated um, things being revealed basically. She was very, very private. Um, and so, for example, she was on the whole a truthful witness, but uh, she said to me that she'd never had any boyfriends before Dennis, and uh, in fact I found that she had three at the same time, in, um, <laughs> uh, um, and, um, and one, of one of whom was Dennis, and she was trying to decide, you know, in those days the absolute need for a woman, in, particularly a woman who wanted a career like her, that she wanted the, the foundation of a secure marriage, uh, and she was deciding between the, all these three men in 1951, and... Uh, Dennis got lucky. Um, uh, all very fascinating, and um, she, she would absolutely not talk, though she did very grudgingly admit this when I put it to her rather gently um, later on. So um, off I went, and um, 
uh, it took a very long time. I've interviewed 600 people um, and uh, for the three volumes, and she uh, more than a more. I reckon that I calculate that more than a million documents crossed her desk when she was prime minister. And I want to say documents. I don't mean pieces of paper. I mean far more than pieces of paper, because often there'd be 200-page documents. And the way the archives really work is that um, they. Um, what essentially they are is everything that crossed her desk. And she, uh, she governed, um, that's the way she governed, she, much more than most modern prime ministers, she governed through paper. She didn't do much of what's called sofa government. She, there was more process in those days, and particularly she loved paper because she loved reading all about, all about the policies. And when you study it, that's partly why, I, because she was so interested in actually governing, I thought this is another reason why this book is long, because I wanted to use quotations from how she worked through all these papers. She underlined something if she thought it was good. She put a wiggly line under if it, if it was bad. And she put lots of comments all the way through, rather than writing her own memos, and often complaints and exclamations of horror and um, sometimes more reasoned argument about things. And then that sort of goes down the line through the private secretaries, and out of her emanates uh, the way she... Governs, um, and so that is the central core. But the oral evidence is also very important because nobody remembers accurately. If you literally nobody remembers accurately, so oral evidence is very faulty. But it also tells you a lot about atmosphere, and it tells you about who hates whom, who loves whom, who was trying to do what uh, to whom, uh, and it and it sort of gives you a sense of what the priorities were in the minds of people at the time. Um, one respect in which it, it's um, very inaccurate in the case, inaccurate in the case of Mrs. Thatcher, oral history is so many of them say, you know, Margaret was fine as long as you stood up to her, and um, <laughs> with the implication that they did, um, uh, but this was in fact very rare. Um, <laughs> um, so that is, the, that is the background, and Mrs. Thatcher, I thought she would try to control me, actually, because even though she'd signed this, uh, made the suggestion herself, because, you know, she's not known for just letting... Uh, things go by without interference. And, um, but actually, she absolutely never did. The most extraordinary and interesting fact. She literally never said, don't say that, do say this, wouldn't it be nice if you said, etc. And she never even said, what are you doing? And I realized that actually she wasn't interested. Um, she wanted it done. She thought it was a good idea to get it done, and she was very welcoming in suggesting it to me, but she was just totally uninterested in it, I think. And that's also, that in itself is interesting. So it gave me a sort of freedom. Um, and she died in 2013. I had it all ready. Um, and, um, uh, and with incredible speed, Penguin got it out, I think, a fortnight after she died. Um, and the spooky thing was I was like, correcting the last page, literally the last page of the proof uh, of Volume 1. I got off the train, and I heard she died. And then we had to go whoosh to get it all in. Um, and if you get something in very, very late, if you want to make a very late change, you have to take out exactly the same number of words to insert the new ones. And the thing I found out at the very last minute was that when she was selected for Finchley in 1959, which was her first winnable seat, um, the son of the chairman told me that when the votes came, it was Mrs. Thatcher and a man, and he told me that his, his father, the chairman, had been so impressed by Mrs. Thatcher that he 
realised that the man had actually won the vote, and he hid, he hid a few of the man's votes so that, and, declared, and declared that Mrs. Thatcher had won. Um, and she, I don't think, ever knew this. So she actually won on a cheat, but not one that she herself had conducted. So it's on these little things history hung, hang, because she, if she hadn't got selected for Finchley in 59 and won it, who knows? You know, maybe we would never have heard of her again. Um, and so now let me just say a little bit about... Um, uh, her in Europe. Um, Mrs. Thatcher was a pro-European when she became leader of the uh, Conservative Party. Um, she was never an ardent pro-European. She wasn't like Edward Heath. She wasn't a sort of deep believer in it, but she thought it was a good idea, particularly in its market aspects. And particularly, this is quite important because people have forgotten this aspect of it, because she saw it as another weapon in the Cold War. She thought the strength of Western Europe would be useful in alliance... It, plus NATO, of course, or less important than NATO, but still useful in confronting Soviet communism. And this was a strong uh, view of hers, and people forget that at that time Portugal, for example, which was not yet in the uh, European community, was seriously undermined by Soviet-backed um, communism, and there was a, there was a danger of... Uh, there was a semi-revolution in Portugal in the mid-'70s, and so on. So this was a real thing in her mind. Um, there's a famous picture of her wearing a jersey with all the flags of the European countries and stand for, the, for the referendum campaign of 1975. But interestingly, she got Ted Heath, whom she'd just beaten, to, to lead the referendum campaign. She didn't do it herself, um, which was both quite nice of her to him and also shows that she wasn't absolutely 100% committed as, as Heath was. When she came into office, she got very, very annoyed with the European community about the our contribution to the budget. And she created a heresy against uh, European theology by, by talking about our money, because um, meaning our contribution. And sometimes when she got really angry, my money, she would say. Um, uh, but the, the point being that in European theology, it isn't. It's Europe's money. And you're not allowed to say it's British, British money, French money, whatever. But Britain did pay much, much more than it got out. Um, and this was... And she successfully, over a long period of very difficult negotiations, um, made sure that the deal was better. This made her unhappy about the way the system worked, and she particularly disliked the way the European leaders, all, all men, of course, um, did their business over dinner. She, all these continental meals annoyed her very much, and she thought they were, she hated the way they were, where she put, put it, anecdoting i.e. showing off stories about you know, what I said to Brezhnev and when I, all those sort of things that politicians love. And she thought it was a very unprofessional way to do business. And she was shocked by how little all these leaders knew about the detail because, of course, she was a fanatic for detail. So she knew what was in all these pieces of um, directives and policy, and they didn't. Um, and she used to hold forth at these dinners sometimes when she got very annoyed and sometimes when she was trying to argue a point and sometimes they would get so angry with her for doing this that Giscard d'Estaing, for example, would ostentatiously, the then French president, would ostentatiously read a newspaper instead of um, listening to her and so on. Uh, so the tension grew. And um, uh, anyway, th she won that battle in 1984. She then signed the Single European Act, which she regarded at the time as a good thing because it was improving market access, and she saw it in economic terms. She quite quickly came to regret it 
because um, she decided that it was actually a sort of cover for a political project of greater European integration and that she'd been fooled on this point and therefore it was taking by abolishing, um, by bringing in more majority voting and that sort of thing. It was creating the circumstances of the ever greater centralization of the European community which she disliked. And then this was brought to a head by the arrival of Jacques Delors as uh, head of the European Commission and um, particularly by a speech he made to the TUC, the Trade, Trade Union Congress here in um, 1988, when he started to say, he said that um, uh, Europe would bring about more socialism. He was himself a socialist. And she was absolutely furious, first of all, that he wanted more socialism in Europe. And secondly, that he'd come to say it at the TUC, which is sort of political, uh, her political antagonist. And that's what produced the famous Bruges speech in September a couple of weeks after that, in September 1988, um, because um, she wanted to hit back. And she suddenly saw the famous phrase was, we haven't rolled back the frontiers of the state in Britain to having, re having them reimposed at a European level. And th that was a direct attack on Delors. And particularly, she uh, was very worried about Delors, the Delors plan for economic and monetary union, which eventually produced the euro. And this was all the background of the argument about British entry into the RM and whether that would lead to a single currency. And finally, this all mixed in with the end of the Cold War. Because Miss, nobody could be more pleased than Mrs. Thatcher by the end of the Cold War. Um, and after all, she'd worked very successfully to bring it about and been very, very important with persuading Gorbachev bringing Gorb and persuading Reagan to meet Gorbachev, her help for Poland, all that sort of thing. So it was joyous for her that the communism was being defeated. But one of the part of that was the fall of the Berlin Wall and therefore the potential um, reunification of Germany. And that scared her because she was anti-German because of the war and she thought Germany would be too powerful. And she was also worried that the reunification of Germany would produce a reaction in the Soviet Union, kicking out Gorbachev, bringing the Red Army in to keep East Germany in the Eastern Bloc and, and causing... Uh, starting to shoot people, which was a reasonable fear. And indeed, you may remember that there was a coup against Gorbachev um, about uh, nine months after she left office, um, which narrowly failed. Um, so this was all very tense for her. And she particularly hated this idea that Germany, and she's with her typical frankness, not to say rudeness, she said to Helmut Kohl, the chancellor of Germany, twice in this century, uh, we've had to rescue Europe from you, and now you're back. Um, uh, uh, me, me, meaning, um, you know, because of the power of the reun reunified Germany, um, this was the danger. She didn't mean there was going to be a war, but she meant the too, too great a German dominance. Um, and uh, this deeply upset her. And I try to portray in the book how she got it right and she got it wrong. Um, she got it wrong because her antagonism to the German project was so great that it alienated everybody else. So they were sort of, they wouldn't listen to her. Um, and because it was too visceral, it was too much. She took me aside once and she said, um, I mean, years later, she said, you know what's the matter with Helmut Kohl? She said all in a corner as if didn't want anyone, you know, she was telling me a secret. She said, you know what's the matter with Helmut Kohl? So I said, no, I don't. She said, he's a German. Um, and um, and um, that was her way of thinking about it. So naturally, poor Cole was not pleased, and, um, but nor were a lot of other people. 
Um, and it sort of cut her off from President Bush, who was very keen to advance um, her relationship with Bush was much less good than her relationship with Reagan. It made a lot of trouble. Where she was right, I think, was that in her prediction, um, President Mitterrand of France in particular said that uh, the, the euro, the single currency, was the price that Germany should be made to pay for reunification because it would bind Germany into Europe. And Helmut Kohl himself believed that. But Mrs. Thatcher, I found an interesting private conversation with Mitterrand shortly before she fell, when she said, no, no, the opposite will happen. If you have a, a single European currency, because Germany is the best financial power on the continent, Germany will now run Europe. It will particularly run it economically, but the consequences of that will also run it politically. And you, France, will lose out, and it will, it's dangerous, because it gives Germany uh, too much dominance in Europe. And in that respect, um, even if you completely disagree with her estimate of the German character, to use that controversial phrase, um, in that respect, I think her prediction was correct, and we see that happening right the way through. Just before she left office, she got onto the idea, when she was getting very angry with the European community about all this, that um, this is something that the people should be given a say in, because one of her great objections to European development was that it wasn't authorized by democracies, uh, by the people in, the, in democracies. And, um, and she came back from the Rome summit at the end of October in 1990, and I happened to go to a reception at um, number 10 uh, that evening, and she came up to me ra rather, in this odd way she could be rather rash, because I was a journalist then as now, and um, she said this, she said that should, um, we should have an election on this issue, and we should um, ask people, do they want to have, be ruled by their elected representatives, or do they want it all to be delegated, to hand it over to a, a, a foreign international body which they can't elect and they can't kick out? And I was very struck by that, of course, and it absolutely wasn't government policy, and that's perhaps the key point. She was making it up, and Geoffrey Howe and others in her cabinet hated this idea, and they hated the idea of putting it before the people. Um, and this is one of the big things that drove Je Jeffrey Howe to resign and to make his famous resignation speech. He was so worried about this. And in the ensuing um, leadership election, uh, I interviewed her and a couple of other people interviewed her. This was in November 90. And she moved, developed this idea that the people should decide into the idea of a referendum. And she said this ref there should be a referendum on the single entry into the single currency because that was the relevant European issue of that time. And then that really, really annoyed Heseltine Howe and so on, and that made it all more controversial. And from then on, always, and of course she fell from office, um, she pursued a referendum idea. And you can see this going right the way through when she was very vigorous in, in retirement, but still in Parliament and then in the, in, in the Commons and then in the House of Lords, attacking the Maastricht Treaty, calling for a referendum on it, greatly embarrassing John Major on the subject, um, and essentially keeping alive this idea of a referendum, and you can, see, you can trace this right the way through to the Brexit referendum. Um, uh, people suddenly say to me, would Mrs. Thatcher have supported Brexit? And I refuse ever to do the would she bit, because my only selling point is knowing what she did do, not inventing what she might have done. And I often think when people say a famous person would have done this, it's a bit like a child who doesn't want to go to bed, who says Teddy doesn't want to go to bed. Um, they're, they're using somebody else to clothe their wishes. Um, so I won't get into that game. But what I will say is that the trajectory of Margaret Thatcher was towards Brexit. And 
in particular, after she left office, she actually did decide explicitly that we ought to leave. And she told that to a lot of people who knew her, including me, and she said it a lot. But her advisors always told her not to say it in public because it'd be too divisive and difficult and upsetting for conservative fortunes. So that is the basic situation. Um, and this is, I think, an important part of the context of what we now uh, are dealing with. Um, these few things that I thought I mentioned which surprised me um, writing this particular volume, you, in a way, Mrs. Atcher isn't surprising because she was a very consistent um, uh, character. And in a way, what you saw was what you get, what you, what you got. But nevertheless, there is always surprises. Um, one thing, sorry, this isn't really what I meant to say about my surprise, but I'll just say this because she had this very tart way of saying things sometimes, which, or direct, or which is actually very funny, though she wasn't a humorous person. For example, when she was going to see Gorbachev in 1987, a fantastically successful visit in Moscow, um, the foreign, it's always in custom on these occasions to exchange presents, and the Foreign Office uh, came up with a pair of silver-backed hairbrushes. Um, and she wrote on one of the, uh, on the thing about this, she, she said, but he's bald, um, <laughs> which is very sort of Thatcherish. It sort of gets straight to the point. You know, all these people thought, wouldn't it be nice to give him? She hadn't thought, uh, they hadn't thought perhaps being men, I suppose, don't think about things like that so much, though men do worry about being bald, of course, um, is uh, that she thought, but how can you give a bald man two hairbrushes? It's just stupid. Um, and there's a sort of practicality uh, uh, about her. But no, the... the, the Here's the first one of the a surprising thing about um, this, her in this period. In this period I'm talking about, uh, late 80s, the problem of AIDS first became very large scale in Britain. And, um, of course, the fundamental problem was simply what on earth is going to happen about this disease? Are thousands and thousands and thousands of people going to die of it? Is there anything we can do to cure it? Is there anything to do, we can do to stop its spread? And if so, how? And all these were complicated by the fact that there were lots of issues about um, sort of morality, because uh, um, should you, uh, by uh, advocating the use of condoms, be, um, in fact, uh, would you, a lot of people said, if you do this, um, you will be encouraging the behavior which is in itself dangerous. Better to say, you know, be celibate, don't do it, etc. Mrs. Hatcher was very torn about this because she was socially conservative, but also very practical and, and a scientist by training. The only, only, science, only prime minister we've ever had with a science degree. And so she wanted to get the information right, but she was very um, worried about sort of presenting um, the relevant sexual practices. And she was a little bit, she was sort of anxious about it. There's a marvel, she writes on one of the bits of paper, do we really need the passage about risky sex? Um, and um, I think the answer was, yes, we do really need it. Um, and she, 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 she agreed to that. Um, similarly, her attitudes were she wasn't what it would now be called homophobic, but she had an old-fashioned, basically Christian idea of, uh, which would now be widely attacked, of thinking that heterosexual marriage was the ideal state and um, uh, homosexual relationships were, were not ideal. I mean, she didn't feel very strongly about it, but that was her sort of general approach. Um, on the other hand, she hated prying, prying into people's private lives. It was one of her obsessions that you shouldn't pry into people's private lives and they should be free in the private uh, sphere. Um, so there's a lot of toing and froing about how you present all this, what words you use, 
And of course, a funny old thing was that all these men in the cabinet were very embarrassed of talking about sexual practices to her in that way you weren't supposed to talk to women about those things in those days and so the whole subject was sort of half taken away from her because they couldn't quite bear talking about it uh, to her um, but um, she, she did a very interesting thing and this was the bit that surprised me um, she decided that she wanted to um, meet AIDS victims and um, she went to the Mild May Hospital and she was introduced with her private secretary, her only female private secretary that she ever had, Caroline Slowcock. And um, she went to meet two AIDS victims who were dying. I mean, they were very near death. And one of them um, was sort of not quite right in the head because of this was, and was sort of hysterical and uh, sort of strange. And Caroline Slowcock was much embarrassed because, of course, it's the job of the private secretary to look after the prime minister in these situations and avoid difficulties. And so she really wanted to get Mrs. Thatcher out of the room with this poor man. But Mrs. Thatcher absolutely didn't want that. And she was, in Caroline's account, tremendously good at just talking to him, calming him down, holding his hand, um, uh, just sort of being with him, really. And it all went very, very well. And then um, she left, and uh, the, a message came from the matron I think the next day, saying that one of the two patients she'd met had died that day. Um, and Mrs. Thatcher immediately wrote back um, a letter uh, saying how moved she'd been by the visit and how impressive she thought the hospital was and so on. And enclosing a cheque of her own money of £1,000, which I suppose would be, what, £5,000 now or something, um, for, the, for the hospital. And the thing to me fascinating about all of this rather unexpected uh, sort of thing, was that she insisted on no publicity, not just on the cheque, but on the visit. So nobody ever knew that she'd done this. Now, a modern politician you know, would tend, without wishing to be rude, would uh, tend to want to turn up to a hospital w with a camera and uh, to show how much they cared about it. But it's very interesting that she just wanted to find out about it without making a fuss about it. Um, the next thing that surprised me, it didn't completely surprise me, because, of course, I knew about the famous speeches, was her um, devotion to the theory and of climate change and the need to do something about it. Um, on the whole, climate change uh, is considered a left-wing issue, broadly speaking, I suppose. Um, and Mrs. Thatcher was, of course, not left-wing in any way. But she, um, in her speech to the Royal Society in September 1988, she, she was the first world leader, not literally the first, because the Prime Minister of um, Norway had already talked about this, but the first global leader to expound the theory in public um, and interestingly it was so sort of not yet caught on that her civil servants senior civil servants didn't even know what climate change was I mean, they hadn't even heard the phrase and when it was announced that this is what she was going to talk to the Royal Society dinner about the television, the BBC and everyone pulled out of coverage because they thought it was so uninteresting. And um, therefore, Mrs. Thatcher had to read the speech in the fish, fishmonger's hall by the light of candles because no, she'd expected television lights and there weren't any. So she was peer, peer, you know, peering down the, uh, through the candle flames. And essentially, she expounded what is still the developing orthodoxy about climate change, that it's happening, that it's man-made, um, uh, that it, uh, its effects are X and Y, uh, the, the sort of extent of the danger, the, the range of temperature possibilities. And particularly surprising from her, 
the idea that it should be dealt with on a global scale through the UN and the International Panel for Climate Change, which was having its first of these now very well-known meetings two months after her speech. So I find all that remarkable, and also um, her attitude to it, which was incredibly annoying for her cabinet, actually, because she was slightly showing off about her scientific knowledge, and she had a seminar in Downing Street with all these scientists, including, and James Lovelock, the famous author of the Gaia theory, who you will remember has just celebrated his 100th birthday. Um, and she made all these, about half her cabinet come and listen, and they were so bored and so desperate to go and do other things, because she kept them in there all day. And she was talking the science with all these uh, professors and whatnot, and they were, of course, completely uh, thrilled. The you know, here is at last a scientist talking to scientists and getting somewhere. And, um, very remarkable. And I had thought, because she sort of slightly recanted on this in old age because she was worried about the threat to economic growth, I'd thought perhaps she didn't really believe this stuff, but actually had the evidence um, absolutely not the case. She did believe it, and she made three major speeches, of which the Royal Society was the first. And I think this is one of the surprising ways in which Mrs. Thatcher did have a great capacity to be a groundbreaker. She, she was very innovative um, in all sorts of ways, we know some of the famous ones, but there were, there were others. Um, the final one is um, also surprising to me, uh, South Africa. Um, Mrs. Thatcher was famous for uh, taking a different view on how to deal with the end of apartheid from all the other, pretty well all the other nations in the world, and particularly all the other um, Commonwealth members. She was dead against uh, sanctions uh, against South Africa because she thought that it would precipitate violence uh, and poverty. And since the black people were the poorer people on the whole in South Africa, obviously, um, their pop they, they, they would suffer more poverty e uh, even than the whites. And also she had a realistic, um, you know, if you like, if you want to say selfish interest, I think wouldn't, I wouldn't use that word, sort of legitimate interest, I would say, in British companies who invested in South Africa. So um, uh, all of those things were in her mind. She had therefore refused sanctions, and she had engaged with the white government when no other big power would. And this had made her very uh, uh, pivotal in the whole uh, system. And when F.W. de Klerk became the prime minister of South Africa and then president, he actually did want to bring about the end of apartheid, which his predecessor, Berta, had not. And he was sort of trying to work out, he told me, it seemed to me, this, to him, the central point, first point, that he had to convince the white population that apartheid was, it wasn't just that they were in trouble and had to give it up for that reason, but it was actually wrong. He thought, if, if, you could, if you, I convince my own people that it was actually wrong, um, rather than just sort of getting grumpy about it, then... Um, it would change. But also, of course, he had to convince them that he wasn't going to betray them, that he wasn't going to drop them into revolution and destitution. And so he had to take it very slowly and, well, actually not that slowly, but very carefully. Um, and she, um, he was very, very impressed by her role in it. He felt that she managed to be the only exterior politician who managed to bring the white population along to see this. And she'd been arguing from, since 1984 that, funny enough, no British Prime Minister before her did this. It's incredible, really. Since 1984, she'd been argued, arguing that Nelson Mandela should be released. It simply hadn't been argued before, though he'd been in prison for 20 years. hadn't been argued by British Prime Minister. And so this was one of her sort of constant demands of the white government. But the, the thing that really did surprise me 
was that she ran, ran a dual, dual track policy. So she would say always that she wouldn't deal with the ANC because they supported the armed struggle and she wouldn't deal with people who supported the armed struggle. Um, and she would only deal with um, legitimate actors. But in fact, she authorized the British government to establish lots of connections with the ANC while maintaining the public position. And that not only at secret level and official level, but also at ministerial level. And this was going on in meetings in Lusaka and in London where Oliver Tambo, the exiled leader, was. Um, and, and Tabo Mbeki and so on. Uh, and so gradually we were building up a very close relationship in many ways with the ANC, who particularly with the end of the Cold War actually sought this cold relationship, a close relationship themselves because they no longer had Soviet backing. And Mandela had been very impressed when in prison by Mrs. Thatcher's Gorbachev move. He'd really noticed that as a move in which people who are at great difference get closer together. And he thought of the South African situation in those terms, that there could be sort of equivalent of a Gorbachev move, both of de Klerk being like Gorbachev, but also in a way of him being like Gorbachev, in that he could move to people who had been um, antagonistic uh, to him. So when, Mrs. Um, when um, Mandela was released uh, in February 1990, um, uh, he eventually started, well, very quickly started to travel the world and, of course, received by rapturous crowds everywhere. And he got very, very tired. He's already quite old by then. And the message came through, through the secret um, connections. Could Mr. Mr. Mandela have a little holiday in Britain, please, to sort of, um, at, uh, at the expense of the British government, to lie down for just a little and, uh, before he goes on his next expedition? And so he was secretly flown into Britain in uh, June 1990 and put in a very large, comfortable country house with, um, laid on by Her Majesty's government with Mrs. Thatcher's agreement uh, in, in Kent. And he spent this weekend, and it's very moving, very unusually, the files contain the photographs of this, which is very rare in, in government files. And you see the pictures of the Tambos meeting the Mandelas, because they hadn't met since 1963, because he'd been in prison and Tambo had been exiled. And, um, and there they all are on this sort of English manicured lawn, and, um, and with the British uh, officials in attendance. At dinner that night, um, Mandela, he didn't like cold alcohol. He said it hurt, hurt his throat, but he liked hot alcohol. And um, he had a glass and a half of hot port, and he got quite excited, and he rang up Mrs. Thatcher at quarter to midnight on, um, from this country house. And, and because he got, well, the person he got was the indefatigable Charles Pohl, her uh, foreign affairs private secretary, who was you know, such a hard worker that he was still there at quarter to midnight. Um, and Ben Taylor said, please, could I come and see Mrs. Thatcher? I'm, um, I know this is only a private holiday, but I, I'd love to come and see her. So Mande um, Charles Pohl wrote this out at midnight, saying, um, Mr. Mandela's just called, um, and he'd love to see you. Uh, the trouble is, um, he's in Tunbridge Wells, and he's got to get a plane from Heathrow at 10 tomorrow, so um, it looks pretty difficult. Um, but um, so what happened was, Mrs. Thatcher, of course, got this straight away, and she was still up, um, uh, 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 as per always. And um, she arranged it, and she telephoned Mandela the following morning at 7.30, and they had a chat, and... Um, uh, Mandela very much liked, uh, typically they both argued, well Mandela is much more sort of restrainedly, Mrs. Thatcher was sort of courteous but very determined, uh, Mandela more obviously courteous, and um, they immediately had argument about things like sanctions, um, but uh, he was very impressed by how her sort of motherly solicitude about how he would need more rest and, you know, hoped he wasn't ill and tired and so on. 
Um, and so they set it all up for a formal meeting, which they had a few weeks later. Um, and before that meeting in number 10, uh, their first meeting face to face, Mrs. Thatcher was told repeatedly by her aides that she must break the habit of a lifetime and not interrupt him. Um, she must get him to say you know, what, he, what he wanted to say. And so absolute world record, Mandela talked for 50 minutes without her before she said a word, which was, was um, never, literally never known before. And then they started to talk a lot, and it went very well. And they were in there for so long that the press outside started to shout out, uh, free Nelson Mandela. Those three things surprised me. I'll just say one further thing, because I, it's, an, uh, it's a dimension of this book that Mrs. Thatcher left office and um, uh, was very controversial in, in, in those ensuing years about various issues. And then, of course, her mental faculties started to decline. And it's a very moving and difficult story, and one which partly due to the care she was given by her carers and partly due to, I think, to, to one or two very good aspects of her character, which she preserved her dignity. I just want to give you one story about this, the extraordinary way that though she was losing her mind, she could still um, behave in an appropriate manner. Um, in 2009, this is so four years before she died, um, she went to stay with Charles and Carla Pohl in Italy, Carla, Charles's wife, being Italian. Uh, and I came with them. I was also there. And the, the purpose, apart from a bit of a rest, was and she loved staying there. Uh, Carla Pohl had a dog called Tony Blair. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and um, uh, Mrs. Thatcher, in her old age, absolutely loved overfeeding dogs and cats. And so I have a lovely picture, which is in the book, actually, of Mrs. Thatcher shoving another steak down... <laughs> Um, Tony Blair's throat. Um, uh, anyway, the point, the point, apart from rest, was um, uh, visiting the Pope, which Carla had arranged, and um, Pope Benedict. And so I went along with the party, and it was very nice for us because the whole of St. Peter's Basilica inside was clear, so we could see it without anybody else in it. And she went to pray at the uh, tomb of the Polish Pope, John Paul II. And then we waited, and the Pope came on to... Uh, for, it was for a general audience, not a private audience, and so it was out in the square. And I said to her, isn't it fun, we're going, isn't it, well, fun might not be the right word, I said, isn't it interesting or marvellous or something that we're going to see the Pope? And she said, yes, but what does one say to a Pope, which I think is a good question, I've never quite known what the answer is. And um, uh, anyway, this little encounter took place which um, was very courteous and had no real content. And then... Um, she and I walked down towards her car, which had moved around to the bottom of St. Peter's Square, so through all the crowds, and everyone started to recognize her, of course, start, and started clapping and so forth. And if you've ever been to these papal audiences, you know that there's a sort of pen of newly married couples who have come to be blessed, and they're wearing their wedding clothes. And so Mrs. Thatcher saw them, and her eyes lit up, and she sort of beetled over to them and said, we did that a long time ago, meaning we got married, um, and it's a wonderful thing to do. And they, all went, you know, they were all very excited and cheering. And then we went down through the crowd and parting, and they were all clapping. And just as we got to the car, I, I said, because um, she was about to get in, I said, um, they all want to photograph you, because uh, I could see that's what... And so she stopped, and she looked a bit worried, and she said, I'd better get this thing off, meaning the mantilla she was wearing for the Pope. And she took it off, and then I could see she was worried that her hair was 
disarranged because of this. So I said, you look fantastic. And, um, and uh, so she did that great sort of statesman wave to the whole lot of them, you know, that they know how to do, is somehow encompassing them all. Great cheers and everything. Got in the car, disappeared. And the point of this is that an hour later, she had not the faintest idea that she'd been to see the Pope. You know, no, no sense of it at all. And yet she'd done the... She kept up the performance in the most extraordinary way. Well, there we are. Um, high time to have some questions. Thank you. Okay, well, I'm going to dispense with the normal chair asks the speaker a question bit in order that there's a maximum opportunity <coughs> For those of you in the audience who want to uh, ask questions of uh, Charles, I should say, when we finish, just before 8 o'clock, those of you who wish to buy a copy of the book, there's a pile outside and helpful people, and there'll be an opportunity, uh, probably not quite as fast as Mrs Thatcher, but to get them signed up here on the stage for Charles needs to leave about 20 past 8. So who would like to... Right. Okay. Gentlemen in the front row, and we'll come up. To, I promise I won't abandon the balcony. If you'd like to say who you are, feel free. In fact, we'll, why don't we do two or three at a time? So we'll start with you. I'll come to others. Yeah. Thank you, um, Nigel Fletcher, King's College London. Um, Tony mentioned in his introduction about this um, idea that people um, continued and still continue to cite what Mrs. Thatcher would have thought about things. Mm. You deal in the book with sort of how towards the end of her life that became quite controversial, things like the, the row over statecraft and how much it reflected her views. Um, I just wonder how much uh, there was a sort of tension between those around her seeking to reinforce their own views um, by citing what they thought that she would have thought at a time when she wasn't really capable of, of making those decisions. Um, and then just briefly, could I ask a, a sort of technical historical question? Have you deposited the interviews at the Churchill Archive? Um, I know Chan wanted um, yeah, to have a, a couple yeah, more. Do you want um, to answer that fractal question? The fractal question. On the, I haven't, but I, I think I probably will. But okay. I may well need them yet, if you sort of mean for... The gentleman there... And then right at the back, the third one. Thank you. My name's Brian Vernon. I'm just an A-level politics teacher. Very, very quick question. How on earth did uh, Mrs. Thatcher make such a massive misjudgment as the poll tax? Okay, and one at the back there. Now, we'll take more, obviously, and the faster we can get them asked, which is good. You've been quick so far, the, the better. Uh, Andrew Khmai. Um This past weekend, one of the reviewers of your book uh, mentioned that you hadn't given evidence of the so-called conspiracy against Thatcher when she was deposed in 1990. Um, is there anything you could say about that? Thank you. Um, uh, on the first point, um, I think it's important to remember that with any great leader, um, people are always trying to fill his or her mind with their ideas anyway. That's a constant process. And to its extent, it's legitimate. I mean, you, you, you wish to persuade. Um, so often when Mrs. Thatcher was making a speech in office, um, the idea would not have come from her. However, being the sort of person she was, she very rarely did the thing of just reading out something she didn't know about. Um, it would be very unusual. I, I would think it probably never happened that she simply advocated a serious piece of policy without having thought about it herself. 
and the same would apply in retirement. Um, however, um, uh, and, and, however, I think when she got older, it became much harder for her to organize her thoughts. By the way, she was never very good at organizing her thoughts. That's an interesting... If she wrote her own speeches, they were hopeless. Whereas if she made an impromptu speech, they were very good. But she couldn't somehow... They couldn't take wing if she wrote a formal, formal speech. Um, and the book Statecraft that you referred to, which is a very late book, um, is just on the cusp um, of whether she... I mean, they are her thoughts, but I think they had to be sort of developed. Um, and indeed, because of the timing of when she had a little stroke, uh, I think the announcement that she would no longer make public speeches was made sort of two days after Statecraft was... Uh, um, published. I, I think I may be getting that slightly wrong, but it, uh, it, it's a difficult... Exactly how far this goes is, is, is slightly difficult to tell. I certainly think that she got very interested in a very important subject, which was the former Yugoslavia, after she left office. Genuinely very interested, but it was no doubt that she, prob that she wouldn't have done that, I think, so much, were it not for Robin Harris, who worked for her himself, being very interested in it. And he sort of but that's, I think, legitimate. But that, that's how it works anyway. Um, on the poll tax, um, interestingly, Mrs. Thatcher is very, obviously very strongly linked with the poll tax, and fair enough. But it wasn't one of those ideas of hers which her colleagues did not share, with the very important exception of Nigel Lawson as Chancellor, who was dead against it. All her colleagues either agreed with it or shut up, actively agreed with it or shut up. So... It was a curi despite her sort of tendency to boss everyone around, it was actually a very co collective decision. And also, interestingly, a very carefully worked through official thing. Well, there were reports and work on it year after year trying to develop. And what I'm going to say doesn't justify the poll tax, but it explains the process, which is that um, she was very against the previous system. And so were most of the British public. This is now forgotten. Uh, because the rating system, which was based on a, notion, uh, notion, a value of, of no, notional uh, um, rent value, was in some ways very unfair. The classic example would be the widow paying very high, the widow with a very low income in a house which attracted very high rates, living next door to four um, active earners with a house that was paying lower rates and divided bef between four people. And also the system meant that a great many electors didn't pay anything and therefore they had no incentive to make the council more accountable and more sensible. And all the context of this is Mrs. Thatcher's horror of unrepresentative local extreme left-wing government by um, people who popped up again, like Councillor Jeremy Corbyn of Haringey, for example, who uh, uh, had a sort of second... Um, Renaissance, if that's the right word, and, um, and um, Ken Livingstone and John McDonnell uh, and so on. So that was, in her head, that, that was the war, was the war on un irresponsible, as she saw it, and unrepresentative local government. So the idea is how do you make it a closer relationship between representation and taxation? You spread it. Um, not such a stupid idea when you put it that way. An absolutely terrible idea when you start thinking it through and when the Treasury isn't helping you because of Lawson say that the actual amount of money involved goes up. Because the original plan was it would be about £50 a year per head. 
But when it was getting to sort of £350 a year per head, and as I say, you need to multiply this four or five times to get more, you, people, the situation was that eight, eight million people, I think it was, who never paid tax before found themselves paying tax. So funnily enough, they didn't like it. And, um, and in this respect, Mrs. Thatcher's political antenna, usually very good, deserted her because she had sold herself and, uh, on the idea. The idea didn't come from her. It came from Oliver Letwin, uh, William Walgrave. Um, but she, um, after years and years of argument about all this stuff, um, came to agree with it. Tony has a much greater expert on it than I, but um, that's the train of thought. And then you get into this situation when it's too late to get out of it. You know, you've promised it. You've started it in Scotland earlier than in England. Are you, can you get it back? And you're on a sort of, um, you're trapped. And, um, and then all her pride went into it, and she hated admitting error. She did realize it was an error. I don't think she would think the principle was an error, but the practice. Uh, and there it is. And it's hung around her neck, and you would, one would have to say rightly so. Um, the gentleman at the back asked me about the so-called conspiracy to get rid of um, Mrs. Thatcher in 1990. I think it was a conspiracy in this sense, um, and, I, and I actually I do think I have produced the evidence. I, I'm, I think it's not right to say I, I haven't produced it. We, we all know that Heseltine um, was the one who challenged her in 1990, and the prelude which people tend to forget is that the year before, Sir Anthony Mayer, who everyone's forgotten, was the stalking horse, and he challenged her. And it was at that time that her managers could see how big the problem was, because though Mayer was of no consequence politically and didn't get that many votes, they were very conscious when they did that campaign for her in, in 89 that um, she was losing her popularity with her MPs. And they knew that Heseltine would um, uh, challenge the following year, although, well, they thought it highly likely. And I found a very interesting document by the Deputy Chief Whip, Tristan Garrell-Jones, to the Chief Whip, so purely private, a secret document, saying this is the end of the Thatcher era. Uh, that, that's, I think, is his exact phrase, or we are, we are near the end of the Thatcher era. And um, we need to manage, basically, we need to manage this. And he, what he's saying, really, is the we means senior ministers, and what they don't want is Heseltine or Thatcher. That's the key point. Heseltine, because he's sort of outside, and they're getting very annoyed at the idea as an outsider, because he had resigned several years before, that an outsider would get the prize instead of the people who are fellow ministers. Um, and they don't want Mrs. Thatcher because, you know, her time's up. And they're probably a bit fed up with her for personal reasons and Europe and poll tax. And, um, and so what you see is a gradual organization of a very informal kind by people like Garrel Jones, um, uh, Chris Patton, um, uh, people on the whole of the, rather on the left, not exclusively so, but um, at the top of the party and in the cabinet. And gradually, I think you see people tiptoeing away from her in the ensuing year and also trying to think of how can we work this out. And by the way, I mean, this is a bit of a conspiracy. I, I do use the word, but it's also understandable because it's not sort of criminally wicked because you have to think about what, what is the future of the Conservative Party, the best, the most peaceful way of doing it, and so on. And one of the people I think was important in this, who did play a double game, which again is not, I couldn't say it was admirable, but it is understandable, is John Major. Because um, he was her sort of anointed heir in her mind, but he was very, very keen, and I show this through a, a letter I discovered, 
when she wanted him to, to nominate her for the second ballot, because she didn't do quite well enough in the first to prevent a second ballot, um, he was very reluctant. He, you may remember he was away having his wisdom teeth done in, uh, in Huntingdon. Uh, so he was apparently out of the game, but in fact very well informed. And what I've discovered was that he, um, his problem was if he nominated her for the second ballot, um, he couldn't go forward for it himself. A member of the cabinet can't compete against another member of the cabinet. On the other hand, if he'd refused to nominate her for the second ballot, then he, she would cease to be his heir because all Thatcherites would cut him off because they'd say, this is a terrible thing to do. You can't refuse to nominate her. So he did a secret deal by which he would nominate her, and this wasn't a deal done with her, of course. Um, he would nominate her, but only if he was assured beforehand that his nomination would not be used, would not be handed in. So he, got the, so he was able to say... Um, uh, to everyone, I nominated her, but he had an arrangement by which the nomination would be withdrawn if she decided at the last minute that she would go through to the second ballot. So it's a clever, clever thing, and um, quite tricky, tricksy. And uh, there was a lot of that sort of behaviour. And while I think um, it was, for the reasons I've explained, understandable, it was also disastrous because um, you can't stab a prime minister like that in the back who's been so successful without dire psychological consequences for the party and that's what we've had 30 years of um, when um, she should have lost in an election a general election that would have been totally legitimate and Chris Patton for example said that to me he, think, he, he said he thought they'd got it wrong um, I'll just say one thing further which is that when she left office she was writing her memoirs and I met her at some party and I said, what are you going to call them? And she said, undefeated. <laughs> and, um, which would actually have been a better title than the Downing Street years, I think, and more exciting. And, but the point is, the psychological point is, she thought, what have I done wrong? I've won you every election you asked me to fight by large majorities, three elections, general elections, and, good uh, trick quiz question, who got the largest vote in the Tory leadership camp contest of November 1990? Margaret Thatcher. She got more than Heseltine and more than John Major, but not enough to prevent the second ballot, and therefore she had to go. So she, she was, in a literal, factual sense, undefeated. So you have this idea, which must be terribly difficult for her psychologically and has caused the bad blood. She was never beaten, but she was brought down. Very, very tricky. I'll park the counterfactual of what would happen if she just won that election. We'll do that on another oh, indeed. night. Indeed, it is fascinating. Um, now, there's a question down here. And then I promise you I'm going to come up to the balcony. We'll take three more from this level, and then I'll go up to the top. So, yes? Uh, hi. I am an A-level student studying government politics. After writing your three books, do you think you've established a legacy which Margaret Thatcher would have hoped for? You mean in the books or in the... Yes, in the books. Uh, <laughs> I'll leave you to, we've got a few seconds to think about that one. Great question. Uh, and we'll go to the guy at the back there, yes. And then there's two, some, two people towards the back there. I'll come to others. Hi, I'm, I'm studying at King's. I just wanted to know, what was once and for Margaret Thatcher's uh, policy on the privatisation of British Rail? Because that's, of all the privatisations, that seems to be the most... Um, obscure. I w um, funny enough, I watched a Touch of Frost, Frost interview of her from 1993, and when he pressed her on that, that was probably the most <laughs> chill that she got in the entire interview. Um, 
And lastly, just if she did fight another election, do you think that she would have fought it on a referendum um, on, on Europe ticket? Okay, interesting questions. And there was another question in the same area towards about there. Yes, the guy there. Hi there. I'm also studying at King's. Um, I was thinking um, about the style of, of Mrs. Thatcher, and um, I've seen bits about her having vocal training uh, and so on. And I was. Uh, thinking about those power, um, some of them are referred to as power, power suits. So um, I wanted to know, is this a considered thing that Mrs. Thatcher um, wanted to portray? Was it necessary for her to progress? And um, what were her thoughts on how she was perceived? Thank you. Yeah. Much is made of it in many of the uh, films and dramas yes. about it. Yes, absolutely. Well, jumping around in the order, the question about rail privatization, um, Mrs. Thatcher was fundamentally against it, or, or rather, she never wanted to do it. It's not quite the same thing. Uh, she would not have objected to the principle of rail privatisation, but she was very worried that it would go wrong um, because, um, well, and indeed it did. Um, uh, uh, not, not that she would have thought for a moment that the British rail system was a better way of doing it, but she was very... Con the most difficult privatisations are, are natural monopolies, and or utilities, um, uh, whereas lots of the other ones were relatively easy, like BT or uh, British Airways or something like that. Um, and um, she was not satisfied that there was a good way of doing the British Rail thing. And it was a sort of work in progress, you know, that all this thing took years. And so she delayed it and, and didn't want it. And uh, John Major introduced it. Um, so... Yes, I think, I think that's the correct answer. Um, on the, um, the book as her legacy, um, well, I can't really judge that. Um, as I think I sort of indicated before, Mrs. Thatcher didn't really like being written about. Uh, and, I, and I would have, if I was able to lay these books before her and say read it, I would get pretty nervous. Um, uh, uh, it just, she just didn't have that sort of mind. Um, what I've tried to do in the book, the reason it's so long is, first of all, she was very important and very hardworking. Lots and lots of things happened. And secondly, the importance of setting out the evidence um, because of being the first person to see it and to collect so much of it. Um, and I think the scale is justified by the importance of the subject. I mean, sometimes I feel sorry that it has to be so long. Um, and I, you know, I see particularly sort of old ladies lying in bed sort of virtually suffocating under it. But, um, uh, but, um, but uh, I, I think you know, she was the most important, in fact, the most important peacetime prime minister that Britain had in the 20th century. Uh, and therefore, in the, in the um, period of universal suffrage, because obviously if you're Gladstone or something, it's a very different kettle of fish. If electorate's only 1,500, uh, one, one and a half million people, two million people, whatever it was at that time, uh, rather than into the 30-something millions. Um, and, so, and also because of being the first woman and because of the, her role in the world, she's the only really important post-war global British Prime Minister, with a bit of exception for, um, for Tony Blair, in terms, of, in terms of what people have heard of, what they consider as an example, who they pay attention to. So it does need that scale. My overall approach about... So what I think about her is certainly is sympathetic, but also highly historical rather than polemical. So um, I am very careful to put down all the 
sort of range of hostile views as well as the favorable views. And I put in some highly critical, I'm not very judgmental about anything in all of this, but I put in some highly critical views of, of my own from time to time. Um, I hope it would be useful as a legacy in this sense that if you read these books, you would basically understand what she was about. Um, the clothes. Um, she, as I discovered in volume one, with these marvelous letters she wrote to her sister when she was very young, she had a sister called Muriel. Uh, you, in the Sherlock Holmes books, you remember that Sherlock Holmes has a brother called Mycroft who's uh, um, more, much more brilliant than Sherlock but can't be bothered. Um, and um, uh, who he goes to when it's really thorny problems. Muriel was not a, a can't-be-bothered person, but she was a much more frightening character than Mrs. Thatcher, if you can believe it, and, um, and uh, a more right-wing. But she, um, but, uh, but she wasn't ambitious, and she wasn't uh, intellectually able particularly. She was a, one of the three men that Mrs. Thatcher was deciding whether to, whom to marry in, uh, in 1951 was this chap called Willie Cullen, a Scottish big farmer in, um, in Essex. And because she didn't want to marry him, because she liked him very much, but she didn't want to be a farmer's wife, she palmed him off on her sister, Muriel, who married him, and they, and they lived happily ever after. Um, in these letters to Muriel, there's an absolute obsession with clothes, and um, she was a lifelong... It came partly from her mother, who was a sempstress, but I think the way to look at it with Mrs. Thatcher from very early days... And remember, she was, this is also quite important in her history because it affected how men behaved. Lots of men thought she was very attractive, and um, dressing well was part of it. And um, I think she saw her clothes like a medieval knight would see his armour. You put it on before you go into battle. And this is how she'd always say um, things like, I must look my best for Britain, that sort of thing. Tremendous care about all the quality, but also the practicality. What c can you wear without having to iron it all the time, that sort of thing. And as she developed, and also television made it different. So she changed her clothes because she studied very carefully what looked good on television and what didn't. So the early rather fussy things uh, don't, don't look good on television. You need block colours. Um, you don't want lots of bows and dots and so forth. And um, this was very carefully studied. She enjoyed it. It made her feel relaxed and happy choosing the right clothes. Um, she had very good women around her who, uh, who advised her about it. And you can, as your suggesting, see the style develop and towards the end it becomes more what some people call Gloriana, it becomes more <laughs> uh, sort of grand and imposing and, and less housewifey and I suppose in a way that's a trajectory of her of her time in office, it's to do with being a, a global figure on a bad day it made, made her look arrogant, on a good day it made her just look a marvellous representative of her country. I mean, for example, in the Poland visit, November 1988, very, very moving visit, because still the communist government, but it's starting to fall apart. She goes to Gdansk, where the Solidarity Trade Union operated, and she was a great supporter of solidarity against the communists. Um, and she chose green because it's the colour of hope in Poland. And um, as soon as she got into Gdansk proper, and therefore was going to see Lekwawensa and the Solidarity Union, the... the um, official media coverage cut off, bang, totally, because they wouldn't show a single shot of her being, um, uh, you know, cheered by the thousands of people in, in Gdansk. Um, but there are marvellous photographs of it, because she, so, she looks so outstanding with the green thing and a rather jaunty hat. And um, uh, those sort of iconic, as people now say, um, presentation of herself and, if you like, of her beliefs and of her her country were a very, very powerful weapon. 
basically, she, she understood that rising through a male world, that was considered a disadvantage, but she saw how to turn it into an advantage, and one of the ways of doing that was with her clothes, her teeth, her hair, and above all, the handbag as a symbol of power. So the symbol of the marginalization of women as just being a, um, you know, sort of silly women, they have handbags, whereas men have power, she turned the handbag into the symbol of power, and indeed she kept things in it, so it was rather like the TARDIS, if you, the, 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 quite extraordinary amount of stuff was in it, which she would, would produce um, uh, dramatically um, to illustrate points of pieces of paper, great thoughts, um, occasionally even objects, I can't immediately think of an object, but uh, sometimes the things would, so it becomes, um, I think she was very clever at understanding how woman, women, woman power can uh, conquer male power, and, and, and in, very importantly, through what she actually wore. And interesting, on the question of her voice, which clearly did change, so yes. is the Queen's. If you yes, look at the, the Queen voice, sorry, in the 1950s, the, voice, yes. the Queen today sounds very different to the Queen in the 1950s. Time for the circle. Yes, gentlemen on the front, and um, two people on the front, and then one at the back. Okay. I'm a professor from China and now a senior fellow at RIC. <coughs> okay, I'm re I've read your books, the two, the first two volume and part, and part of the the third through the Daily Tele Telegraph. It's fantastic. Okay, my question is that yes, there are two. It's very me about China is about the, the talks between Mr. Sanchez and Deng Xiaoping. But I must tell you that there are two versions. One is your version; the other is Chinese side. I'm sure. Yes. Okay. My <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I try my best to, to generalize her idea about China, but I couldn't. On the one hand, I think that if I remember well, she says that in the, in the future will depend on two countries: one is China, the other is U.S. On the other side, he, she declared herself uh, an enemy of a communist uh, model. Okay, my question is that, in your opinion, what his, what, how did she think of China? And roughly the same time she took power is the time China, the Chinese reform and open policy. Oh, what's, what's her idea about that? Okay. And it's very about Deng Xiaoping. Thank you very much. Very good. Thank and you. then further along, yep, further along the front, then the chap at the back. Uh, thank you. Uh, Max Marlowe, president of the Hayek Society here at LSE. Speaking of great things and great thoughts she produced from a handbag, she famously produced one of Hayek's tweet eyes. So my question is, um, to what extent was Margaret Thatcher an ideologue, or was she an ideology in herself? Yeah, thank you. And <coughs> back. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm Divian Sharma, paediatrician from the Royal London Hospital. Um, having uh, read some of Alan Clark's diaries, um, I, he, so he, his diaries provide a sort of a backdrop uh, to uh, Thatcher's downfall. Mm. Um, he, talking about her style and so forth, he seemed to have a, 
a great admiration, um, almost uh, an attraction, uh, quite a strong attraction for her. I wonder if you got a sense of what she actually thought of him. He was hoping to to write the, bi- the, the, the official biography at one point. Yes. Yes, I tell the story of how he wanted to write the biography um, in the... Well, actually, what he wanted to do was he... he she was looking for someone to ghost her memoirs at this stage, and he wanted to persuade her that it actually wouldn't be her memoirs, but would be his biography. Um, and um, she, she, didn't, uh, she didn't agree to that. Um, sorry, since I've started to answer, this is the last question, but I'll, I'll, I'll go on. Um, Alan Clark's diaries are brilliant on this period. They do give a great deal of the atmosphere. They're not God's own truth. Um, uh, <laughs> be slightly careful about... Um, putting too much reliance on any particular thing he said. However, it's true that he found her attractive. He once said to me, forgive this slightly um, uh, indelicate expression, but he said, um, uh, I don't want actual penetration, just a massive snog, was how he, <laughs> uh, how, how he put it. Um, and um, uh, uh, and um, the thing was, he, um, uh, he sort of worshipped her uh, as a... Um, such a vigorous figure who can sort of change the whole situation and um, and she liked him because she liked he was her sort of man in she liked tall well-dressed dashing um, uh, men often who'd been in the army and she liked to be very intelligent um, uh, good-looking um, uh, sort of um, smart uh, smart in the English sense of smartly presented not um, and um, she didn't like sort of blobby, fat, bumbling sort of men. Um, so, uh, so she liked Reagan. She liked um, uh, Cecil Parkinson. Um, she liked Gorbachev. She didn't like. She liked Mitterrand because she said that he knows how to treat a woman. I don't think she did know how he did uh, <laughs> treat women. Um, and she didn't like Helmut Kohl. You know, great big fat German. And um, and uh, she didn't like Jeffrey. Well, she increasingly she did originally like Jeffrey Hubbard. She increasingly didn't. And again, it was to do with being rather slow and bumbly and quite large and bespectacled. And um, this was important because she, there was a certain type of man who she flattered and she liked being flattered by them. It was, quite, it was sexual without any impropriety, um, which is a very powerful thing, I think. You know, she's a totally proper person, so there wouldn't be any complications. Um, but um, she did like all that, and Alan Clark would come into that uh, category. And she liked, that's why she loved sort of... Um, Sailors and SAS and uh, all that stuff with the Falkland soldiers, a very much personal feeling about them, and particularly also as a mother uh, as well. Um, uh, sorry, was that the end of your... So have I answered that question? Uh, I, I just wondered why she, she didn't... I mean, he was, he's a good writer, but she didn't want him to write the biography. Oh, I see. Well, she just, just at that stage, she was thinking about her memoirs. This is very early on and not about a biography. I think it's as simple as that. Um, also, she, though she did admire, like him and so on, she didn't never put him in the cabinet. She had some sort of sixth sense, which anybody would have, that it might have been high risk. Uh, to, <laughs> he was a minister, but only a junior minister. China, um, thank you very much for that. And, of course, one of the problems of writing about world affairs in this book is that, well, I don't know Mandarin, and I, uh, though I, we have studied greatly the American records, there's a huge amount of American records in this book, and some of the French records and so on. I have not studied the primary sources in China, so I'm afraid I simply don't know the Chinese side, and I'd be very interested to hear more about it. Her attitude 
First of all, she first went to China when she was leader of the opposition in 1977, and she absolutely hated it. This was before the um, beginning of the Deng Xiaoping era. And she, I mean, she hated communism, and she particularly hated what she knew about Chairman Mao and the um, Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution and the murders and fa famine and absolutely her idea of totalitarian hell. And um, she never liked the communist regime in China in any way, but she felt a great responsibility to Hong Kong, and she was terrified of the idea because under the lease, we had to hand Hong Kong over in 1997, as you know, and it was a worse nightmare for her that she, of all people, should be handing over a free British territory to a Chinese communist. So, but she felt, she looked into the idea of whether we could defend the colony with our troops and things like that and realized we couldn't. So we had to hand over, in her view, very reluctantly, but we did. And so how do we um, do it and protect the freedom of Hong Kong people? And here she played a very weak hand pretty well, I would say. In the end, China was bound to win. But the Chinese government under Deng was sufficiently um, enlightened to see that uh, you didn't want to kill the goose that lays the golden eggs, and therefore um, you wanted to have, to use the phrase used, the through train, which was the expression at the time of moving from um, colonial period to one country, two systems. And indeed, the whole concept of one country, two systems uh, was devised as a, between the British and the Chinese, and, and for a long time, I mean, it's now falling apart, but for a long time, successfully. Um, of course, she was then very frightened. One thing I should say about Deng Xiaoping is that she, you couldn't say she liked him, but she was impressed by him. However, they had a pretty disastrous meeting, their first meeting, partly because in the old-fashioned Chinese way, he was always spitting, and he had a spittoon between himself and Mrs. Thatcher. So he was always... And you can see her sort of wincing as, uh, <laughs> as it goes splot into the... Uh, she really, really didn't like that, and it made quite an unfavorable impression on her. However, um, uh, it, it, did, it did sort of work. And then, having made the agreement... Uh, uh, the Anglo-Chinese um, uh, uh, declaration, um, she then became very alarmed because of the massacres in Tiananmen Square in 1989. And she thought that, and this is described in this volume, that um, this would all um, go, uh, could make the whole Kong, Hong Kong thing completely collapse. Confidence could desert Hong Kong. People could leave overnight. There was a big row um, about whether, therefore, we should take more Hong Kong people into Britain, or rather, to give them passports, which would give them the confidence to stay in Hong Kong because they knew they could get out. And um, she did do that. I mean, not, in my view, enough, but she did. So her usual anti-immigration instincts were uh, put on one side, and she had a conflict with the right of her party about this because she wanted to give more... And her, she was very impressed by Hong Kong people, and she understood something about which I don't think many politicians did which is that though Hong Kong's not a nation, they are, it, is a, it has become a people. So they have a, a cultural identity, which is, though they're, of course, virtually all Chinese people, they think of themselves as Hong Kong people, and this has a real meaning to them. And she really admired that, and she wanted to est uh, encourage it as a sort of free entity in the world which could survive in the world um, under one country, two systems. And we see, you see that battle going on now. Um, and I think that's... She understood that much better. So she had, she inspired, one of the reasons that confidence was maintained in Hong Kong was that Hong Kong people trusted her, which they didn't trust the Foreign Office. Um, 
uh, and I think that was a very marked difference. And I notice in talking to Chinese people nowadays is there's a great interest in Margaret Thatcher in China, which is quite surprising in a way, given her fundamental hostility to the Chinese system. Um, but there is some sort of recognition through that that on both sides there was remarkable leadership. I think that's what it is. And also great interest in a woman leader, and that persists. And um, my book is translated into Mandarin, uh, earlier volume, but I'm afraid I'm so ignorant of the language that I do, when, I, when it's come, I, the only word, words I can read on it are in English, Charles Moore, Margaret Thatcher, and I have no idea what bit of the book it is, because it seems very short to me, so I don't know whether they've thrown away all the bits that are <laughs> unfavourable to communism or what. Um, and I don't even, I just don't know whether it's volume one or volume two, what it is, but anyway, I've got several copies of it. Um, <laughs> uh, I, ideology. Um, she... Um, Fundamentally, I don't think Mrs. Thatcher was an ideologue, um, but she was very captivated by certain ideas, which is not quite the same thing. And she, to use a modern word which she wouldn't have used, she liked weaponizing them. She liked turning them into a series of sort of active doctrines. And to, I, would, I personally think Thatcherism is not really an ideology, but it's a disposition in politics. It's a way which is very much based on the character of the person who thought it up. And even, even that word is wrong, because she or phrase is wrong, because she didn't think it up. She sort of did it and developed it as she went along. It's, it's a series of ideas about virtues and activity and vigour and um, freedom and nation, and they're not completely coherent, but you can jolly well recognise it when you see it coming towards you. And um, therefore, it's very powerful, but it's not very exact. You couldn't put it all into a book like you could, in the same sort of book as you could Adam Smith or... Hayek or something like that. She would say, I think you were referring probably to the Constitution of Liberty when you said about the book brought out of the handbag, and she said, this is our creed or something like that, but she didn't wholly mean that. She meant it was a great book and very important, but she's an active politician, not a philosopher. Okay, it's five to eight, so I want to take one... Um, yes, I've got Jesse. And... Uh, gentlemen there, I'm going to have to two. I'm sorry about you. Yes, you can come and say hello at the end. Yeah. Uh, Jesse Norman, I'm a member of Parliament. Um, Charles, thank you for a marvellous book and a marvellous talk. Um, I can't help noting that I think Mrs. Thatcher said uh, of Hume and Smith that the Scots invented Thatcherism long before I was even yes. thought of. Um, but I, it is about Thatcherism. I want to ask you, what is your take on what happened to Thatcherism and to the extent it was as it were, a contentful, that's the word I want, um, set of ideas. And um, do you think it has any future? And right on this side, yeah. Hi there. Uh, My name's Jacob. I'm a student at King's as well. Um, Just a quick question. Um, If our political leaders could learn anything or one thing from Thatcher, what would it be and why? Very good, very interesting. Um, Help. Um, (laughs) Well, I don't know if this is necessarily the most important thing, but it, it does come into my mind. Funnily enough, Mrs. Thatcher was very indecisive until she'd made a decision. Um, she went back and forth, back and forth, terribly conscientious, going over things again and again, blaming ministers for coming up with ideas that she, didn't necessarily, she was frightened of, then adopting them and so on. When she decided, she never went back on it. That's the thing. So, um, and I think that's basically, 
if it's a fault, it's a fault on the right side. Deliberate before you announce your decision and never back off afterwards. Um, and uh, this is not observed nowadays. So that an idea is floated which hasn't been properly prepared and ministers then start running away from the thing they've announced. It happens the whole time. Mm. And it's, um, it's, it's disastrous. Uh, and she was really very good at, at not doing that. Um, the other thing, well, I'll, I'll use this as a way of answering Jesse's question as well. Um, Thatcherism survives partly, as I say, as a disposition, a sort of model of leadership, which people study all over the world, without the content necessarily of the particular beliefs. But I think some of the beliefs do remain very important because we mustn't get into an end of history idea that all these problems about freedom versus totalitarianism don't matter anymore because we have less totalitarianism. We could have totalitarianism at any time, um, and we must also, uh, we may be getting more of it actually, um, and we must remember that the things that, she settled a lot of things for a long time and they will probably become unsettled again, like trade union power, for example. She thought of privatization, it's extraordinary now to think that people didn't think of it before, I mean, it really is weird. But the, we, the thing I want to link the two here is um, it's something to do with her capacity to embody and make a message and I saw this very clearly exhibited in 1997 when she asked me to do the book and we went to stay with uh, her private secretary in the country and there she was and after um, lunch I went into the drawing room and there was she and Ed Llewellyn actually who's now the ambassador in Paris and was David Cameron later became David Cameron's uh, chap, chief of staff, and our son came into the room, who was then seven, and um, he sort of sat down, like sort of pretending to be a grown-up, and I thought, oh, help, what's happening? And, um, and he turned to Mrs. Thatcher, and he said, did you like being Prime Minister? And she said, well, we had the chance to make important decisions and improve the life of our country, and so we liked it very much. So he said, um, did you pass some good <coughs> laws then? And she said, yes, we did. We made Britain strong in defence, we reduced the power of the trade unions, and we cut taxes so that if people can keep more of what they earn, they earn more. At which point Will said, um, so did you get very rich when you were Prime Minister? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and she said, no, we did not. In fact, we forewent part of our income, which is true, actually. And um, uh, so I've rather tried to bring the interview to a close. But the point is that um, even to the seven-year-old, she was preaching the key message, this extraordinary ability to sort of keep on, and rather sweet that she treated him as if he was Sir Robin Day or Jeremy Paxman or something. <laughs> she didn't patronise him at all. So you get the message, preach the gospel. It's to do with her Methodist background. And it, as it says in the Bible, in season or out of season, preach the gospel. Very, very important part of her uh, legacy and her effect, I think. Okay. You're done. Thank you. Yes. Right. I think we should stop. It's one minute to eight. So I want to allow an opportunity <coughs> for those who want to uh, take advantage of the book outside, buy it, have it signed here on the stage. Um, I'm not going to summarise what's happened this evening, so, so other than to say two things, really. One is, it's absolutely clear, Mrs. Thatcher and her style and the content of her long period in office still remains relevant, high interest, particularly it would appear from all. Welcome everybody from King's this evening, by the way. Love to see you all here. Good, good to see you all. Uh, and secondly, I just sort of, I don't want to ask this 
question because you don't want to answer that anymore, and particularly not this kind, but it is interesting to play the game with oneself, to wonder what Mrs. Thatcher would be making of the Conservative Party's struggle as we speak to reorient itself on taxation, public spending, and the voter base that it seeks. But we'll just, I'll just park that interesting question for my own and your edification. Well, I'd say, other than to thank Charles Moore for his talk and answering all our questions this evening, is sort of an answer to the question, the excellent question about uh, legacy. I do think it's fair to say that the three volumes of this authorised biography are widely seen, certainly by reviewers, as a sort of gold standard <coughs> for the political biography, certainly of Prime Ministers, and that's perhaps a way of ending on a high note. So uh, I'd like you to thank Charles Moore and...